following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I'm here at Temple B'rith Kodesh in Brighton with my friend Rabbi Kelly Levy. Um, thanks for agreeing to do this. Uh, and Rabbi Levy is going to uh, talk with me a little bit about the Jewish method of interpreting scripture. We've been talking about uh, Christian models for interpreting scripture, and I wanted to get this perspective because uh, it is uh, historical for us uh, and our tradition, and we share some roots. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Great. I want to start with some terminology. And uh, the big word, as I understand it, as a Christian, in the Jewish tradition is Torah. So can you explain what Torah is and um, maybe why that's such an important thing for Jews? Sure. So the Torah is actually defined as law. Oftentimes you'll see it in uh, our scriptures when you have the word Torah, and they'll say the law. Um, Torah is the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It starts with the story of creation and ends with Moses' death. And this is the, the scripture that we hold up as our foundation, and we often refer to it as Eitz Chaim, the tree of life. Mm -hmm. It is where we get all of our history from, our traditions, and where our main laws are, are derived from. So if uh, somewhere in the Psalms there's a, there are many occasions where it says, I meditate on your law day and night, that kind of thing. Would that, that's the same word? Absolutely. Torah. Yeah. And uh, what are the other terms for the other portions of the Jewish scriptures? So the complete Jewish Bible is referred to as Tanakh, which is inclusive of Torah, which is where the T comes from, Nivi'im, which is the N, and which means prophets, and Ketuvim, the K, uh, which are the writings. So the books of the prophets are people like Samuel and Kings and that type of, of writing. And then the writings are actually the books of the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, those types of books. Okay. And is there a hierarchy of importance between those? So we read Torah every single week. Uh, most people often remember that we read it on Shabbat, which is Saturday, but we actually have two other days of the week in which we read Torah, that's Mondays and Thursdays. Historically, we read on Monday and Thursday because those were market days, and those were the days that more people were in one space, in one public space, to be able to hear these important words. Um, and so we read it three times a week, and we only read the Torah on those three times of the week. And also on Shabbat, we read from the Book of the Prophets, the Nevi'im, as well. So those are the three times uh, that we have Torah in the week, and then also what we call Haftarah, which is the Book of the Prophets. Mm. Uh, we do include the books of the writings, the Ketuvim, in different parts of our service. So for example, Psalms are an integral part of our morning, afternoon, and evening liturgy. Uh, we also use Psalms for things like funerals, sometimes we'll use them at weddings, uh, but they're a big part of our liturgy in the actual service as well. So when you say you read Torah three times a week, that's at, at public services three yes. times a week. So um, what does the average Jewish believer do with these scriptures on their own? Like, is it common to read and study at home? 
So especially for Shabbat, study is a huge component of, of what it, some of the things that we do. Um, there's a term called Shomer Shabbat, which means to keep or protect Shabbat. Uh, and on Shabbat, you would, you would cease from doing work, things like watching TV, uh, ride, you know, driving your car somewhere, using electronics, things like that. And the intention behind it is that you would actually fill that space with study. People often will study Torah and the other books at other points in the week. Psalms, like I said, are used quite a bit. Uh, if you have a death in the family, somebody will often recite psalms until the funeral begins. We also have a tradition of reciting psalms when somebody is ill as a way of, of helping to bring healing and, and prayer of healing to that person. Interesting. Uh, so let me hone in on the word law for a second because the, the word law uh, sounds a lot more kind of uh, negative um, mm. to my ears than Torah. And I wonder if, um, well, maybe just tell me a little bit more about those two words. And uh, sure. do you think of Torah as just a set of rules or is it bigger than that and more important than that? So there's actually another way to define Torah and that would be teaching. And so when we think of Torah, if you think of especially the book of Leviticus and really Deuteronomy, there's a, there's a really extended recitation of laws. It's a lot of commandments, which we call mitzvot. And so it's easy to think of Torah as a book of laws because we do start with stories, but the majority of the book of the scroll is made up of laws. But the idea behind the laws is that they are meant to be taught. And when something is taught, there's also an opportunity in there for interpretation. So that's why over time, our understanding of these laws has evolved. And that's how, as a Reformed Jew, I can make Torah relevant to my life in comparison to what the Israelites experienced. Because I often will tell people that the religion the Israelites practiced was very different than the Judaism that I practice today as a modern Reformed Jew. The, the uh, introduction of the rabbinic era is really what changed how we practice Judaism as we know it. Um, a lot of those laws that the Israelites were talking about and learning about and teaching to others are not something we do today. They are very much related to sacrifice, which we fortunately don't actually participate in anymore. And so the idea is to make those laws relevant to our lives today. Uh, so you mentioned two terms there that I want to dig a little deeper on. One is I want you to tell me what the reform tradition is, mm -hmm. and then I want to tell you I want you to tell me what the rabbinic era means. Sure. So Judaism as a whole stems from the same place. It's the foundation, the belief in the monotheistic God, uh, the belief that God is one, and that we find all of our history and our traditions in our Book of Torah. Over time, our understanding of those laws has changed and evolved. And in the 1800s, in the, in the 19th century, starting in Germany, there was a group of, of Jews who really didn't feel like the way they were practicing Judaism was relevant to their lives. And so they had a desire to change that. And they wanted, um, in addition to changing the way they practiced Judaism, they wanted to be viewed as full citizens of the countries in which they resided. Jews were not considered citizens, especially in Germany and other European countries. So... They thought that by changing the way they practiced their religion, they might have an opportunity to be included as citizens and receive the benefits of being a full citizen of a country. 
So Reform Judaism started in the early 1820s as a way of really re-understanding re and reimagining Judaism as a whole. And a lot of people misunderstand what Reform Judaism is in comparison to Orthodox or Conservative Judaism. Really what we've done is made Judaism a little bit more accessible to people. We have a lot of English. When it first started, there was quite a bit of German and other uh, European languages as well. But in addition to that, we included things like music and musical instruments and things that people who would attend church would see on a regular basis. So Reform Judaism incorporated a lot of things like the organ music, which was very popular in the 1820s. Not so popular these days, but today we do things like have guitars and piano and drums, sometimes a trombone, just depends on the week. Um, so Reform Judaism is a reimagination and a reinterpretation of Judaism as we have traditionally understood it. I would still claim to be a traditional Jew, to be a religious Jew. My level of observance is somewhat different. On Shabbat, for example, I don't necessarily stop using my electronics, but personally I choose not to respond to email as a way of resting on Shabbat. Somebody who is part of the conservative or orthodox movement may either choose or may just not practice using some of those, those modalities today. Um, so I, I still wanted to ask you about the rabbinic tradition, sure. but let's set that aside just for a minute because I'd like to um, have you talk a little bit about your approach to applying Torah nowadays. Mm -hmm. you, you said that that's... Um, uh, that you you recognize the differences between their mm -hmm. culture and ours, and that makes a difference in how you apply um, these scriptures. So is that something that's unique to the Reformed tradition? Would an Orthodox or conservative rabbi say the same thing, or something kind of the same, or would they say, no, those Reformed Jews, we don't want to talk about that? Well, I think it really depends on who you ask, because individuals will have a different response. I would say, though, that one thing we can all agree on is that the religion that the Israelites practiced is not the same religion because that component of sacrifice was huge. Yeah. Sacrifice was not allowed after the destruction of the temple because sacrifice could only be done in the temple, in the Ohel Moed, in the Tent of Meeting, in that very special place. And when the temple was destroyed for the second time in 70 CE, there was no longer a space available to fulfill those commandments. So we often re make reference to the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten, but the Torah actually has 613 commandments. And over 300 of them are associated directly with sacrifice. Hmm. And so the reality is anybody who says they're fulfilling all of the mitzvot at all times, all of the commandments, it's disingenuous because over half of those mitzvot are not actually mitzvot that we can follow today. So I would say that it depends on the person you ask. There are certainly Orthodox Jews and, and perhaps even conservative Jews who would question Reform Judaism. Um, but there, as many as there are of, of those rabbis and, and Jews, there are many who would say that our Judaism is actually just as uh, acceptable mm -hmm. to them as it is to their own practice. Interesting. So um, in the case of uh, the sacrifices, the, or the laws pertaining to sacrifice, clearly there's no way to to follow or fulfill those commandments. Right. Well, um, there's a desire by some to create a third temple. Oh, interesting. I think PETA and other organizations would <laughs> be all over us. Um, and I think a lot of Jews 
especially today, would not be interested in, in reintroducing sacrifice. Sure. Um, but for now, as it stands, unless that happens, there's, there's clearly no way to fulfill those commandments. Right. For the remaining half of them, um, it's a little bit more gray, I would imagine. Sure. And so I'm curious, how do, you, how do you determine which of these commandments hmm. apply today and which don't? I think that especially as a Reformed Jew, and it's true for, for Judaism across the board, but Reformed Judaism places a huge emphasis on ethics. Mm -hmm. And whatever commandments are presented to us as a way of leading a more ethical and moral life, those are the commandments that we would choose to participate in. As an example, there is a commandment which, to my knowledge, and I think to most people's knowledge, has never actually been fulfilled. But there is a mitzvah that is unrelated to sacrifice called the ben sorer, the rebellious child. And if a child is so rebellious and dishonors their parents, which as we know is a huge commandment for us to follow, they are actually to be taken to the center of town and stoned to death. Hmm. I know that some people would probably think, that might be really nice when my kid's behaving <laughs> very badly. But... As a Reformed Jew, I could never be on board with participating in a mitzvah like that. Um, there's a misconception, the word mitzvah is often thrown around and misinterpreted, um, often as a good deed. and does not mean a good deed necessarily. There are several mitzvot which are good deeds, things like giving tzedakah, giving charity to the poor, um, leaving the, the gleanings of your land, of your of your agriculture behind so that those who are hungry can have something to eat. Those are absolutely good deeds. It's also a commandment to light the candles on Shabbat. Hmm. While lovely, it's not necessarily a good deed. And so... It doesn't have that ethical center. It, exactly. There's nothing that really drives you to, to do that that would make you a more ethical or moral individual. So I think that's how, for the most part, we tend to look at the mitzvot, the commandments in the Torah. Great. Um, so let's come back to the rabbinic tradition now, sure. and I was already going to ask you about um, Midrash, which mm -hmm. is something I'm fascinated by, so um, I think those two things are somewhat connected. Can you talk about what that means? Absolutely. So for many, many, many thousands of years, the Torah was given what we say, um, Torah Sheba'al Peh, oral Torah. It was passed on from generation to generation by telling stories, by retelling the information, and it was never written down. There was a fear that if it was written and then that document was to be destroyed, that we would in some way be destroying God and destroying our faith. Hmm. Well, after some time, it eventually did end up being written down. I think probably that had something to do with the um, ease and accessibility of writing things in later centuries, but as the Israelites were wandering the desert and as they established their land in uh, what we refer to today as Israel, um, there was not really an easy way to write things. So now that they had parchment, the animal skin that we see today, uh, it became a little bit easier to write it. So once it was written, and then after the temple was destroyed, what were we going to do with the sacred text that we read three times a week that we study extensively, that we believe in as our Eitz Chaim, our tree of life. What were we to do with this text? After the temple was destroyed, this new rabbinic era came about where people who were considered rabbi, the word rabbi actually means teacher. Sometimes it's also, um, it's also translated as master, but I, I prefer the word teacher. <laughs> 
teachers came about who, whose sole purpose was to take that information in Torah and find a way to expound on it and make it a little bit easier for the people who didn't read Torah at all times to understand it. So some of the ways that they did that were to write different uh, codifications, different texts. One of those texts is Talmud. It started with Mishnah, and then it became Talmud, which is an, an incorporation of these very short, terse terms, these short uh, explanations of the laws. And then it was broadened a bit with some additional commentary, and that's what we have as Talmud. Almost immediately after all of these texts are redacted, there's something new that comes about, and we need more explanation. So one of the things that the rabbis also did was include this new type of literature called Midrash. Midrash is similar to Talmud in that it takes these laws and it takes these different scenarios that you see in Torah and expounds on it with different types of stories and narratives. And sometimes the stories are a little bit crazy and a little bit out there, but it's an interpretive way of understanding our laws and understanding where our Torah was trying to go and make it relevant for that time. So you know I'm going to ask you uh, what's the most out there <laughs> story in Midrash, right? <laughs> I mean, I, it, almost every single story in Midrash, it's bizarre. I mean, there's this whole tradition, one of my favorite, is about the woman Sarah Bat Asher. Sarah, Sarah was the daughter of Asher, one of um, the tribes of, of Jacob. And there's this whole story that when the Israelites were fleeing from Egypt, they could not leave until they had Joseph's bones. Hmm. Now, the, the Egyptians knew that the Israelites would never leave without the bones. So remember, they had been in Egypt for 400 years. So the Egyptians had buried the bones in a place that nobody knew where they were. Somehow, Sarah Bat Asher, who's now 400 and something years old, is still there and is able to go to the river and she calls up the iron casket that had the bones of Joseph placed in it wow. and calls the coffin up and they're able to take the bones and flee out of, out of Egypt. Wow. It's, it's things like that. It's, yeah. it's how do you, how do you uh, justify and rectify knowing that they knew where the bones were but after 400 years. So um, very interesting story. It's very, very bizarre. Yeah. So my uh, kind of folk level understanding of Midrash um, maybe is like a capital, a difference between a capital M, this official thing mm -hmm. that happened at a particular time, and a lowercase m. My understanding of it was as a more ongoing process of uh, interpreting and interpolating and um, finding new expressions for these ancient texts. Is, is there any accuracy to that understanding? or? Absolutely. I mean, the whole, the whole idea is that it's reinterpreting this text so that people can understand it. Because today, when we read Torah, there are often times when we'll see a law or commandment that's unrelated to sacrifice that doesn't really make sense to us as people of 2016, of the 21st century. Things have changed dramatically from then until now. Um, so Midrash was a way to make the, the stories and the laws of Torah relevant to the Jews of the early centuries of the Common Era. Um, so, one of the uh, topics that's been really big on our mind at Artisan lately uh, is the question of the violence that we see mm -hmm. in 
the Bible, and maybe particularly in what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew mm -hmm. Scriptures. And I'm very interested in hearing a Jewish uh, take on that, because I'll tell you what my take on it has been, which is to say uh, Jesus shows us a, mm -hmm. a peaceful, nonviolent alternative to this, and, and that Jesus is, is who fully reveals the heart of the Father for us, um, above and beyond anything that we read in Scripture. Um, but you're not allowed to play that card. <laughs> so, um, and I mean, it's, it's sort of a, um, a funny, friendly way of, of raising the question. I don't mean to make light of it. Um, I really would be interested in hearing what, how do you, because you, you must have congregants who come to you sure. and ask about that. I do, and it's, it kind of goes back to what we talked about before, which is how do I, as a current, uh, you know, modern-day Reformed Jew, how do, I, how do I find relevance in Torah? And I think that one of the most important things to remember is that Torah has evolved and our understanding of Torah has changed over time as new experiences are introduced into our world. I can tell you that people's understanding of Torah changed very, very drastically from the early 20th century to the mid 20th century following World War II. Our understanding of God and God's mercy and God's kindness was very different after the time of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. The same could be said about the time of the Torah. The people were oppressed for 400 years as slaves in Egypt and then they marched through the desert for 40 years where an entire generation dies in the desert and then they're introduced into this new land that they don't know that has significance and meaning to them, but not personally. It's more of a traditional historical meaning. And the, the God that we see in Torah, while violent and somewhat unforgiving, is not the, the God that we are supposed to love and revere later um, after the Israelites are settled. And I think that our understanding of that text is that that was a specific time, that was a historical context. And the times have changed drastically today. And so at the same time, it's very hard when you see a lot of heartbreak and terrible things happening happening in our world. It's very hard to reconcile those feelings of, you know, how does God play in our life? And, and doesn't, don't things seem kind of violent today? But as far as the violence that you see in Torah, that was that time. And even though we don't, we don't admonish that. We also don't hold it up as this is what things should be. Hmm. Very interesting. So it sounds like maybe the that ethical center sure. has has shifted. Yes. Um, and you know, one of the one of the great responses I got when I started preaching all this nonviolent stuff recently was, "Hey, um, I've I've kind of had a lot of oppression in my own life mm -hmm. and." People and institutions have treated me very, very badly. And I kind of want a God who will stand up for me and defend right. me. Um, the, you know, God is the defender of the weak. Mm -hmm. And so don't, don't be too quick to take that away from me. And I thought that was uh, a really interesting counterbalance. And as you're talking about the, the historical, cultural context of the time when these texts were written, right. uh, you know, the Israelites were surrounded by people who were I mean, saying treating them badly uh, would be a, a significant understatement of what was going on. And it's continued on. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we always talk about that Jewish holidays are a celebration of somebody tried to kill us, we overcame it, now let's eat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how most of our holidays really focus. Yeah. 
And that's, you know, one of the things that's interesting if you look at Torah for, as an example, um, the first time we see this real violent act against somebody is with the story of Noah. And there isn't a Jewish people versus a Christian people versus the... Everybody was really kind of just who they were. The only clarification we have about Noah was that he was a tzaddik, a righteous man. Um, he walked with God, but it didn't specify how he walked with God or what that meant for who he was as a believer. And all of these terrible things were happening, and God said, i got to do a mulligan. <laughs> I've got to take it all back and try again with some new people who were, who were good. No sooner has Noah um, you know, saved all of the animals in his family than we almost immediately after see the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah where these people are still not behaving righteously and they're still not doing things they're supposed to do. So part of humanity is that there's always going to be those who misbehave and act badly and there are going to be those who deal with a lot of oppression and strife in their life. Um, the idea for us, though, is to be able to say that God has our back and God is watching out for us. And you will see it time and time again in Torah and in the texts that follow that God says, if you follow my commandments, if you observe my mitzvot, I will be there and I will grant you blessings and I will give you abundance and life that is thriving with goodness. So uh, I want to conclude by asking you something kind of... Uh light and fun maybe um we'll see i guess uh but lightning round kind of thing sure um tell me some of your favorite hebrew words from scripture uh and what they mean and why they're special to you so i think uh one of my my favorite words that there's a grouping of them is chen vechesed verachamim they kind of go together and we often translate them as mercy kindness and goodness and I love those words together because they're often grouped as one, indicating that you kind of need mm. one of them to have the other two and vice versa. So I also really love the word rachamim because it, be, it, it sounds so odd, but it comes from the word rechem, which is also the word for womb. And mercy and womb together, I think, is really interesting. Mm. I think it shows that where we come from is a merciful place and that we all come from this idea of kindness and gentleness. Wow. And so it's really special to me to think about where we have come from, which leads me to my next favorite word, which is the word for bereshit, the very first word we see in Torah, which is in the beginning. Hmm. It all comes from the beginning. Hmm. Rabbi. <laughs> Rabbi? <laughs> <laughs> Does, does that mean you, like, the verb rabbi? You, you, you well, yeah, like, have you ever seen um, How I Met Your Mother? Uh, no. Well, there's, one of them is a lawyer, and he always goes, lawyered. Okay, rabbi. Got it. We're going to keep this in. Bye. <laughs> um, uh, so you mentioned the word for womb. What was the word for womb? Rechem. Rechem. And the word for mercy? Rachamim. Uh, interesting. It's the same, plural. same root. Yes. Oh, okay. And... Um, that makes me wonder, uh, since you are pregnant, you're obviously you are a, a woman rabbi, and is that I am. You, yeah, <laughs> I divined that one. I figured that one out. Um, <clears throat> uh, is that something that only happens in the Reformed tradition? Are there women rabbis in the other traditions as well? Great question, and this will be a shameless plug. Mm. There is a new book that was just published. Um, it's called Sacred Calling. It's about forty years of women in the rabbinate. So 
it's a really great time to be asking that question. So we often talk about the very first woman who was ordained was from the Reformed tradition. Her name was Rabbi Sally Presand. She is alive and well these days. Um, and she was ordained in 1972. But there was actually a woman ordained in 1935 named Rabbi Regina Jonas. She was ordained in Europe. Um, unfortunately, she did perish in the Holocaust. But very little was known about Rabbi Jonas until the early 90s. But one of the amazing things about this new book, Sacred Calling, is that it kind of delves into how women have kind of become a huge part of the rabbinate and where they are in not just the reform world, but also the conservative world and the orthodox world. So um, I would be remiss if I didn't also include the reconstructionist world. They also have a lot of female rabbis. Um, as a point of trivia, there are actually more female students at HUC, in my seminary, the Hebrew Union College, than there are male students mm. for almost every single year for the last 15 or 20 years. Mm. Um, women have been ordained in the reform movement since 1972. Uh, the conservative movement uh, started ordaining women probably, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and we're very, very proud that there are actually some women who have been ordained in the Orthodox movement, in the modern Orthodox movement. More um, ultra-Orthodox uh, movements would not consider women uh, to be rabbis, and that's a whole other conversation we can have. Um, but Rabbah Sarah Horowitz, uh, she has a different title. She does not have the title of rabbi. She has Rabbah, which is the female version. Um, she is, she's been ordained, oh, close to probably 10 years at this point. I, I might be a little off on that number. Um, but, and there have been a few more women since that time who've been ordained. So it's really exciting. Interesting. Uh, there's a, a woman mentioned in the New Testament named Junia, who's described as prominent among the apostles. And, uh, of course, you're not supposed to have women apostles. <laughs> Um, and so, at a certain point in church history, somebody changed the name to Junius, which is a masculine ending um, for the name. But uh, we've uncovered that that happened. So, hmm. yeah, interesting how the, a little bit of a change at the end of a word makes a difference. It's amazing, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me today. This has been really interesting. I know that the people of Artisan will, will love uh, hearing from you. I often get asked when we're going to bring you back. So, <laughs> uh, we're doing it via video today. Um, and so thanks, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.